You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and everything, if you thought that was as wrong as it could go, it gets worse when he gets there, and he is now taken from home, placed into a faraway country where he's now working the land for people after they stole him from his land. And Jesus is going to show up and change the course of human history. And Joseph is going to say things like, you're going to hear it in a moment, it was God who sent me here. And I'm going to say something very serious right now, and then we'll get a little bit more lighthearted for the rest of the service, okay? So everybody take a deep breath. You're going to hear politicians, if you haven't heard them already, try and do one of the most despicable things and say, well, you know what? There was at least some benefits from slavery. And Christian ones, if you could call them that, are going to cite this story. This story is not about the benefits of Joseph being sold as a slave. This is the story about the reality that no matter what human evil tries to accomplish its work on this earth, God's goodness is never going to be stopped from happening no matter what. This is not a story of God's will being that Joseph was sold into slavery. This is Joseph coming to, to the realization that although God's will was probably not for him to be sold into slavery, the top of God's will will happen no matter what we try and do. That's what this is a story about. This isn't a story about God making something bad happen so that something better can take place. This is a story about how the goodness of God is so good that it happens. It ha- Everybody say happens. It happens to things that are so bad and converts them from the inside out. It is not God's will that anyone dies. So God went into death and converted the use of death. It is not God's will that anyone goes into slavery. But what he did because that happens is he went into slavery and converted it from the inside out. Amen? So please don't be deceived into hearing. In this case, terminology matters. Good things happen in bad situations, not because God ordained the bad situation, but because God is so good that goodness can't help from happening even in bad situations. But the nuance, people will say things like, Pastor, you're splitting hairs. First of all, I have none. Second of all, it is always, everybody say deception. If it was obvious, it wouldn't be called deception, now would it? It is always a sleight of hand. It is always the, 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 a change in the tense of a phrase that makes us hear a whole bunch of good things and not realize that we swallowed a lie in the process. God did not ordain Joseph's slavery, nor has he ever ordained any forms of it. But because he's perfectly good, the evil that the economy of man keeps trying to pursue can only end with good happening, not because God ordained the bad, but because his goodness, like like a blade of grass through concrete, will just come up no matter what. That is the gospel. The gospel is not that death was God's will. It's that death has been converted. And so we have to be careful with our terminology. Thank you for indulging me. Now everybody take a deep breath again. If you hear somebody say this nonsense... Be kind to them. Be nice to them. Don't trust them. I'm dead serious. I, if somebody said to me, what is, the, what is the number one question you have as a Christian minister? And my, besides child suffering in the world, I think the second one would be why God allowed his Bible to be so easily messed, up, messed with. Why it's so easy to misconstrue it. That will be my first question when I see him. Why would you do that? Why do you hide it? Why do we have to go looking for it? Why is it the glory of a king to hide a matter and it's the glory of his servants to search it out? Why? 
why not just come right out and say the truth? I have a feeling now that I'm saying it out loud, now that you're hearing my personal musings in front of everybody, I have a feeling because it, whatever God tells us first, we end up ruining. So it may be that God offers us a parable as opposed to a direct statement so the truth can grow on us as opposed to us trying to conquer the truth and define it. I don't know. Let's read the Bible real fast before I keep musing. Don't let anybody tell you that slavery was good because benefits happened. Don't ever let anybody say that. Don't allow that. Always turn that back to the goodness of God being so good that even when things happened that he didn't will, his goodness will still grow. As it says in the Bible, streams will flow in the desert. Amen? Uh, when, when Balak tried to get Balaam to curse Israel, he said, you can do nothing but bless them no matter how hard we try. That's the goodness of God. So just remind people of that. Okay. So here's the moment where Joseph is now standing in front of his brothers who sold him into slavery, and he comes to the realization, he's moved with compassion, and he reveals himself to his brothers. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. This is so key. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him because they were caught. <laughs> I know what it says in the Bible. But they couldn't answer him because they didn't know what to do with their face. Darn it. We didn't see this coming. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, remember? And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you, and this is why the language can be tricky. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Let me just say, God could have delivered Israel from this famine any way he wanted to, and he probably had other ways he would have done it if they didn't sell him into slavery. Amen? But because they tried to mess with his plan and sold him into slavery, the goodness of God happens in such a way where Joseph could say, God sent me here. Listen, not because it was his will, but because his goodness will always happen to badness and make badness goodness. Amen? So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry Go up to my father and say to him, thus your son Joseph, God has made Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. And your children and your children's children and your flocks and herds and all that you have, not just humanity but creation also, there I will provide for you. For there are yet still five years of famine to come. So that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, that is key, see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all of my honor in Egypt and of all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers, everybody say, talked. After that, his brothers talked with him. The word of the Lord. And now would you please stand for today's gospel reading. Good morning, Salem. A reading from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, 21 to 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. 
He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The word of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. So uh, thank you, Salem Tabernacle, for giving Jacqueline and I a chance to be off for the last three weeks and to refresh ourselves. Uh, I want to, I, I said last week, thank you. Thank you, honey. You're so beautiful and I love you. Steve Saldana did a wonderful job. We already clapped for him, so you don't have to keep clapping for Steve. I watched a little bit of the sermon last week, and I noticed that after my lengthy announcement video, which Ian did a very good job on, I looked wonderful on it, thank you, Ian, Ron gets up, and Ron Green, Elder Ron Green, has the nerve to say, Bill, Pastor Bill, stole some of my sermon. Can I remind you, Ron, of every Sunday when you close the service, you stand here and you essentially say, let me tell you what I hear. Let me tell you what I hear, because everybody's thinking it, so let me tell you what I hear. I see you come up here, all cool, too cool for school, and he says, that was a good message, everybody. Wasn't that a good message, what Pastor Bill said today? Yes. What he should have said, or what he was trying to say was... I love me some Elder Ron and Essie Green, everybody, and he did a fantastic job yesterday. And stand up. Let them see the shirt that you're wearing for the final time this summer. Let's go. I just, I want you to know, like, it is, it makes you feel like Superman when you have somebody like Ron who at any given moment, I could have called Ron this morning and said, hey, I can't get there. And he would say, I'm going to choose one of the five sermons I had ready for today. This man is ready in and out of season. And he stays ready because his life is lived under the threat of death. Always. Essie, I only say these things comes I'm like 15 feet away from you. If I was closer, I probably wouldn't say anything like that. As Jacqueline and I prayed, we were asking the Lord to give us a refreshing view of where we're at as a church. And over the next few months and into next year, there's a few things that we're going to be addressing. But one of them is that we need to learn to live a little bit more simply than we live. Our lives are very complicated. And we have a lot of desires and values that are all over the place, and they change on a daily basis. And a few things that I wrote down that I want to begin touching on is, number one, I think that there is a lack of contentment that has moved across not just the Christian world, but the world. And it's making us fidgety. It's making us a little uneasy where we sit. People are fidgety these days. They have to move. They have to change. They have to do something to get the rush back. Because if life stays normal for too long, we're starting to think that that's not healthy. We're busy in all the wrong places. And we get stuck on couch lock when we should be busy. You could disagree with me all you want. I know this because, number one, I know it all. I would never say anything up here that I wasn't struggling with myself. There are times where I am overworking, overworking, and it's on stuff that isn't the stuff I should be overworking on. And then when the stuff I should be working on hits, I get a little bit unmotivated. I'm, like, I'm just going to spend five minutes on my phone. And then, like, 187 days go by, and you're like, oh, my gosh. You ever have that moment when you're doom scrolling and then you finally break free? It's like, it's like a Hogwarts curse was released over your life. You're like, how long has it been? Where have I been? How am I 10 years older than I was when this started? 
We no longer, listen, back in the day when things were a little healthier, preachers would say, you're pursuing the good life. Listen to me carefully. You're pursuing the good life, and you're, you're, you have a vision of life that you want, and that vision of life is becoming your God. But I think because things are a little less healthy right now than they used to be, listen, we're no longer pursuing the good life. Something a little worse is happening. What we're doing now is we're, we're living our life, listen to me, aware of a nightmare life that we're trying every day not to have. So there was a point where we were pursuing a good life, but now it might look like that's what we're doing, but really a bottom level fear has set in and we're spending so much of our time trying to avoid a nightmare as opposed to attain something good. We're living every day trying to avoid a worst case scenario. There's something in all of our lives where if it happened to you right now, you would say, that's what I was trying to avoid. We're going to talk a lot about this. You don't have to figure this all out now. I'm just, I'm I'm showing you the suitcase before we completely unpack it. And yes, I'm using vacation analogies because yesterday on our way home, I packed and repacked our car 36 times in the name. I was pleading the blood of Jesus. I was praying for patience. I was praying for so many different things. We finally got that thing locked. And like our, our, you know, our Mazda shuts itself and it wouldn't. So I'm like, and I shut it. And then Jacqueline calls me. She's like, we forgot Theo's pack and play. I'm like, well, leave it. (laughs) He's getting older. Not going to need it forever. Plus it belonged to my mom anyway. We just leave it here. Just leave it here. So I'm going to use some vacation analogies, right? Unpacking. I literally think when we got home, I hit the button to open the trunk, and like two things were like, poof, like flew out of it. We're less open to reason than we've ever been before. Our first thoughts lock in and become only thoughts. And the number one reason for this is we have, listen to me, we have lost our discernment as to where we find the information we listen to. We have lost our discernment. We we get information from the right places, but we listen to information from the wrong places. So all all the sources are on the table. It's like, no, I read my Bible. No, I prayed. No, I listened to our pastor. No, I, you know, I talked to an elder. I called my deacon. That's fine. You did that, but you're still saying yes to the information that's coming from not those places. This is all of us. It's not just me. Just because me and Carrie are honest to a fault, we need a revisioning of the love of God, Salem. You cannot try harder to change these things. We need a revelation of the love of God. And I want to talk about that today. Today, I want to talk about the idea that God reveals his true love to us one way and one way only, by confronting our misconceptions of that love. We develop a misconception of the love of God, and he shows us his real love, not by showing it to us out of the blue, but by confronting a misconception of his love that we have, and then we see his true love by looking at the misconceptions of his love that we've had. I'll give you an example. This is when this started to turn in my spirit a little bit. There is a prayer in Exodus 15. It's a song. The uh, Pharaoh's army is drowned in the Red Sea, and Moses and the Israelites begin singing, which is exactly what they should do when something good happens. They should begin singing. But some of the lyrics of this song bother me every time I read it. And like a good cherry picker, I just chose those lyrics out of this for a reason. So here is some of the things that Moses sings that I don't know about. And if this is making you nervous, I don't want you to be nervous. I want you to straight up have a panic attack over this right now, okay? Here's what Moses sings. Then Moses and the people of Israel, and I'm just going to skip a little bit, sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is a man of war. Is he, though? Is he, though? Did Jesus say to put the sword away? Because if you live by it, you'll what? 
Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Yay! But they had mothers. Didn't they? Every one of those guys who died, isn't somebody grieving for them right now? Talk to me. Isn't it easy to dehumanize the enemy because offense causes you to not look at the person? It causes you to dehumanize the person so that you can rationalize the person going away forever. I know some of those moms were like, can you please stop singing this song? The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Okay, you said stone, now you got to say lead. Like We're just really... And you know what? Here's the thing. You ready? Watch. It's fine that they sang that song because when you've been abused and you're no longer being abused, you're allowed to sing some wrong things. But something eventually has to happen because here's what's interesting about songs. Anybody grew up in a strong, strong Pentecostal home when you were young? And you heard about how music, like the devil could get you, right? Like you've heard things like Satan used to be the worship leader in heaven and then he lost his position and now you have it. And now he, right? (laughs) Nobody wants me leading worship anywhere. I can promise you this. If I started leading worship, Jesus would be like, can we get Satan back? Because at least, you know. Music has a way, listen to me, of getting into your subconscious. And when it gets into your subconscious, you're singing songs that you don't know you're singing. You're singing lyrics that you don't know you're singing. It's a melody that happens in a place beyond what you're consciously aware of. And so when the wrong lyrics get into your system, you don't know that they're forming you the entire time. So... We don't have to try to make people petrified like some of our parents did, that demons can get us through music. But on the other hand, we should guard the gate that is our ear. Because when the wrong lyrics go into the subconscious and leave the subconscious, it's not because you're not singing them anymore. It's because they went to a deeper place and you don't know that you're singing them. So a song that's like, yes, my captors are dead. They sank. I hate them. Thank you, God, for destroying them. Their mothers can cry for them. These are other things that David sang. Dash their little ones against the stone. Here's the thing. God wants us praying those things so they get out of our system, not stay in our system. So we're allowed to vent when we pray and sing, but then... As it says in Psalm 139, destroy my enemies, get them away, make them a taunt among the nations. And then David says, now that I've said all that, see if there be any grievous way within me. It's like I said, all, I said what I needed to say, but now, Lord, if there's a better thing to say, teach me how to say that. And that better thing may be Jesus saying, I want your enemies to become friends. You're like, that's not what I want. Well, I'm going to give you a new song. Watch this. In Revelation 15, listen to what it says in Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven signs with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And everybody's like, yes, I love the wrath of God. Kill people. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, one of Salem's verses, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and listen to what they sing. And they sang, and they sing the song of the servant of God and the song of, so look what just happened. Don't let this stuff skip past you. It was the song of Moses... But now there's an addition to the song, yes? It's the song of Moses and the song of the... It is the song of Moses, 
So he's not ending the Song of Moses, but there's an addition to the Song of Moses, and the addition is the what? The Lamb. It's the Song of Moses and the Song of the... Listen to this song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. How many nations? Even Egypt? All nations will come and worship you, but aren't some of the nations dead at the bottom of the water? All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The song of Moses' lyrics changed when the lamb was added to it. When the lamb was added, the destruction of other people was removed. Now, the things that were destroying those people, making them destructive people, those things were destroyed, and now they're no longer destructive people. Do you see that? So what God wants to do is he doesn't want to kill his enemies. He wants to destroy the things that are making his people enemies so that when those things are destroyed, his people will just be his people. So the song is rewritten. It's the misconceptions of God that he's a man of war is rewritten to something better than that. There's a song you're singing over your life. A song that says you're not worthy. A song that says you're not good enough. A song that says your mistakes are going to go farther than your good decisions. A song that says your best parenting years are over because your kids are all done and moved out. There's a song that we all sing that's a song of us really being the ones that we end up at the bottom of the river. And Jesus is saying... I'm going to come and meet you at the point of your misconception, and I'm going to re-lyric your life. I'm going to re-lyric your life. So, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've actually done this here at Salem Tabernacle, and I thought I might be wrong for doing it, but I didn't care. And then it turns out, God re-lyrics songs too. We just talked about it. The song of Moses, he took some verses out, didn't he? And he added some new verses in there. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a song we sing called How Deep the Father's Love. Doreen sings it beautifully when she sings it, doesn't she? Yes. And part of that song used to be, and I apologize to the author of this song, It'd be dope if I knew you anyway, but I don't. It used to say, it was my sin that held him there. That was the line. It was my sin that held him there. No, it wasn't. See, God needs to meet us at our point of misconception. It wasn't our sin That held him there. Because that would mean that my sin is the only thing keeping Jesus on the cross. Which would mean that he would need my sin to fulfill his mission. When I say it that way, do you hear how bad this can actually be if that's in our subconscious? And I'll tell you, I grew up in a Christian tribe that obsesses over sin and kind of gets a little excited on Easter about his righteousness. I grew up in a Christian tribe that in order to get people to understand their purpose, we got to talk more about Satan than we do about Jesus. Have you ever heard somebody get up there and say, where you're getting tempted, that's actually where your purpose lies. And the whole church claps. But why is it easier to see our purpose when we talk about Satan than it is when we talk about Jesus? Because we think it's our sin. We've elevated our sin to a level of prominence where it was never meant to be. It wasn't my sin that held him there. It was his love that held him there. 
It was his love that held him there. In spite of my sin. Because of it, but not in need of it, to vanquish it. But if I talk about his love, then I don't get to talk about other people's sin. Good! My bishop, Bishop Quentin Moore, tweeted this morning, God accepts us. This is simple. God accepts us, not because we've been good, but because he's always good. But shouldn't I have to do something to earn it? In America, yes. But in the kingdom of God, deserving is not rooted in merit. It's it's rooted in God's loving choice for us. Light was light because God said let there be, not because it proved itself first. Amen? All right. I haven't even gotten to the crazy points yet today. We just sang one of my favorite songs of all time, actually, in Christ Alone. And if you noticed, there was a new lyric in there today. The song in Christ Alone used to say, (laughs) it still does everywhere else but here. (laughs) I go to jail for this. We got to start that prison ministry soon, everybody. It used to say, while on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Yuck. Again, we are in the image, we, we will live the image of the God we think exists. This is why this is dangerous. Because whatever, who we think God is, we will image that God. We will do what we think that God does. So this lyric, while on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. If this was said anywhere else, you would immediately think it's a horror movie. God the Father needs to see death in order to be satisfied. Dads, would you let your daughters date a guy like that? Please say no in the name of Jesus. God's wrath. Do you know over and over again in your Old Testament, God warns you of serving the God Molech? You know, we don't talk an awful lot about the Old Testament. We're going to more and more. But Molech is a God who says... I need to see the death of a child, and then I'll bless you. And all through the Old Testament, God is never more angry and enraged than when people are offering their children to Molech. And then we sing a song that says God was only satisfied when he killed his son. God is not Molech. Jesus is not on the cross trying to change God's mind about you. But you have to know this because you will live like this God. You ever hear the courtroom analogy? We were convicted, and God the Father was like, Tim, death. And then Jesus was like, no way, Dad. Don't kill him, kill me. And God's like, well, I gotta kill somebody. Sounds like my mom growing up. I got to kill somebody. And Jesus like, well, kill me. I've lived a perfect life. And God's like, that's the best life to kill. Boom. Do you know how horrible this is? Have you ever heard the word Trinity before? The Trinity is the essence of unity. And you you no longer have a Trinity if you have a son who's trying to change God's mind. Because that means that the Son and the Father have a different mind. So to put it overly simply, Jesus on the cross is not, it's not a revelation of Jesus trying to change God's mind. It's a revelation of what God's mind is. 
the mind of the Father is, I would die for you if that's what it took. It's not craving blood. It's not craving death. It's offering itself in the hopes of getting you back. So we took the liberties of, without any copyrights, of changing the lyrics to, while on the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was glorified. Because that lyric is a misconception. God is satisfied when he sees your life. He's not satisfied when he sees death. No one should be satisfied when they see death. Jesus, when he was facing death, said, let this cup pass. We shouldn't be satisfied seeing death. We should see glory in that God died for us to convert the use of death entirely. What songs are you singing about your life that you don't know that you're singing? that are forming a view of yourself, a view of your neighbor, a view of your life, a view of, of God, and he's coming to make all songs new. He's coming to change the tune, the melody, and the lyrics that you're singing about him and about yourself. Look at the story of Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman. She's like, my daughter has a demon. And here's what Jesus does. It's hilarious, but it's not funny to me because people didn't get it. <laughs> but Jesus goes, you know what, lady? I came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. They're going to get the children's bread first. And the disciples are like, the boys club over here is like, yeah. Tell her to go away. It's about the men. And Jesus is like, oh, I'm going to. This is going to be a long road. <laughs> so watch this. Well, go back and read it. I'm already taking too long. Read the story. When, when the woman comes, Jesus doesn't say anything. The disciples say, tell her to go away. And Jesus answers, we don't know who. When Jesus said, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, we don't know if Jesus is talking to the woman or to the disciples. Why? Why on earth does God do it this way? Even the disciples at one point were like, can you please speak to us plainly? And he's like, never. It seems like what God does best is taking the most complicated road to something. Am I the only one? Has God ever just done it point blank ever? No. You know what I think is happening here? I think Jesus is calling out of the disciples their misconception of him so that he can reveal a better version of the perverted view that they have. He's essentially telling them that they are the lost sheep precisely because they think this woman should be told to go away. So Jesus says, the bread is really for the children. And the woman's like, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs, right? And you could interpret this however you want, but I think her and Jesus are having a funny moment with each other. She's like, he goes, you know, the, the, the healing is for the dogs. Healing is for the children. And she's like, yeah, but even dogs are going to eat the crumbs. And they're both talking about the disciples. <laughs> Look at these guys. They're going to send away a woman on the margins whose daughter is possessed by the evil one. They're going to send her away because she's not of them. This is favoritism at its highest. And don't act like you don't play favorites because we all play favorites. And I'm about to show this. I'm about to preach a little bit in a minute. We all have favorites. And so Jesus says, well, healing is really for the children. It's her child who needs healing. And she, and he looks at her and she says, oh, yeah, you know, only, the dogs even eat the crumbs. And he says, go home. Your daughter is healed. And what he did was he showed them that their conception of God's love is rooted in competitiveness when it should be rooted in love. 
He made them agree with him. I do it to you all the time. I say amen, right? And you're like, amen. And I'm like, no. You shouldn't have said amen to that. Because sometimes we need our misconceptions to be called out so God can reconceptualize us. I will close, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, I will close with the story of Joseph. Talk about a misconception getting healed. Joseph, as a little annoying kid, has a dream that his whole family is going to bow down to him. And every mother and father and siblings, I have some of my siblings here, I'm sure everybody would be super happy if I started telling them constantly that I had dreams that they're all going to bow down to me one day. You feel awkward even saying it. Joseph came out and said it, and his brothers got upset with him, and his father, read the story carefully, his father rebuked him for it. So Joseph's brothers hate him, and they're like off in a far land, and Jacob, Joseph's father, is like, hey, go see how your brothers are doing. Now, get out of the Bible for a second and pretend this is a movie. All the brothers hate him. Joseph is here with his dad in his special little coat that his dad made for him, and he says, you know what, son, who I love? Go see how your brothers are doing very far away by yourself with them. If you're watching, you're like, don't go. Why are you sending him? You're a terrible dad. Joseph goes. His brothers, in a convoluted reality, end up selling him into slavery. So look at these misconceptions that we have. Number one, Jacob has a misconception of what love means because he has a favorite. Joseph is his favorite. And by making Joseph his favorite, he has introduced the notion that love and competition go hand in hand. Don't act like it's not you because most of us grew up thinking that God is most pleased with us when we do the most right things because we think that our behavior is what makes us, I want to get my coat of many colors. His brothers had a misconception of who God is by thinking that competition is the way to the Father, which the Father introduced, and they bought into it. And you ready? Joseph had a misconception that being in charge means that I have power over you, which is what made everybody mad in the first place. Do you see this? Do you see these misconceptions? Lie to me and nod your heads. Then Joseph goes, he gets falsely accused, he ends up in prison, then he ends up in a prison prison, then he interprets somebody's dreams and they forget about him, and then finally he rises to power. And do you know what he doesn't do when he rises to power, Sound Tabernacle? He never once says, please, somebody, because now I'm in charge of everybody. Please, somebody, go tell my dad that I'm okay. I'm sure he has been grieving for the last 30 years. As a matter of fact, he doesn't go. He doesn't tell them to go see his dad. He doesn't go tell them, Jeff. Please go let my dad know I'm okay. As a matter of fact, when he has his first son, he names his first son and says, God has caused me to forget all the hardship I had in all of my father's house. Everybody say all. He was mad at his dad because he realized, I think my dad tried to kill me. He sent me to those jokers, knowing they were mad at me. It either means that Jacob did try to kill Joseph, or it means, you ready? Everyone listen in. That when you are obsessed with something too much, 
you'll lose all your discernment of how to take care of it. And you'll send it someplace thinking it'll be okay when it won't be. Some of us are our own personal little favorite. And we lose all discernment of ourselves. And we send ourselves into jobs, places, relationships, activities in those relationships that are not good for us because we were so high on ourselves that we thought we'd be okay. Am I talking to somebody? Oh, let me rephrase. Am I talking to somebody you know? <laughs> Joseph then, Dan Savage just walked out, good. <laughs> Joseph then sees his brothers and he's like, yes, you guys, do you know who I am? They're like, yeah, you're that guy in Egypt. He's like, you don't even know who I am. This is going to be fun. And he starts tormenting them. Your Bible will say in the uninspired title of the text, Joseph tests his brothers. But that's not what's happening. He's tormenting them. Go home. Come back. Go home. Come back. Leave. Oh, put one of my cups in their saddle. Why is your cup in the saddle? Come back. We're going to hang you. And they're like, we didn't steal anything. Why is all of our money back? And he has them all come back. And then, who does he kidnap? Come on, somebody. Benjamin! Why does he kidnap Benjamin? Because Jacob now has a new favorite. And Joseph knows. And so he kidnaps Benjamin to torment his dad. It's kind of funny because the way I'm talking all weird... Like I'm blippy or something. <laughs> but it's actually tragic. Because Joseph has a conception of God that is vengeful. And then all of his brothers are there. And one brother in particular comes up to him and says, Can I... <sighs> Can I finally be honest with you, please? What brother was it? Judah. You see, it's funny. When praise gets in God's ear, something happens. Something happens when our explanations turn into praise. But there's a way in which praise can move the heart of God. Yes? But who in the New Testament is Judah's counterpart? Judas. So it's funny how in one story praise can move the heart of God, but in another story praise can try to transact blessings. Have you ever heard somebody say, if you praise harder, God will get you that house? That's 30 pieces of silver nonsense right there. I'm just saying. You can tell him I said it. Joseph has a conversion. He sends everybody out. And a new spirit of love overwhelms him. And it re-lyrics, it re-narrates the song that he had been singing about himself in that pit, misunderstood, misdiagnosed, accused falsely. He's been singing this song that says when I, if I ever get a chance, I want to destroy them. And then in a moment, the Holy Spirit reveals the real love of God to him. And he goes from saying, I can't believe you did this to God might have been in it to save you. Now, please go get my father. Go get my father. The one I've been holding the grudge against the most. Go get him. Take my wagons filled with gifts and blessings. And go get dad. He's too old to walk. Carry him. And he falls down and weeps on whose neck? 
Benjamins. And when they sit down, who does he give more food to than everybody else? Because he's starting to honor his father. Even though his dad still is making the same mistakes. The whole, I'm going to say that again for a mom and dad out there. Even though Jacob is still making the same mistakes, the Spirit of God rushed on Joseph and said, take you and all your mistakes. I want you, Dad. I just want to be in your presence again. I just want to see you. I don't care about what happened. Misconception. Reconceptualized. Abraham had a favorite, and Ishmael suffered. Isaac had a favorite, and Esau suffered. Jacob had a favorite, and all the family suffered. Thousands of years later, two disciples go up to Jesus and say, hey, since it seems like everybody's got favorites, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand, please? Why would they even ask that unless there was a culture of favoritism? And what does Jesus say? No. And what does everybody else hear? Yes. And the other disciples get mad at Peter and John as if they were Joseph and Benjamin. And Jesus says, stop everyone. You're doing what the uncovenanted people do. In my kingdom, there are no favorites. There's only the least. Stop trying to climb the ladder. Stop trying to be the top. Stop trying to be the favorite. Stop trying to have favorites. Salem, and listen, we could talk about parenting all day long, but let's face the facts. We got favorites everywhere. You know what one of our favorites is? Money. We'll talk about that in a second before we come to the Lord's table. You all got a favorite. Trust me. Trust me. Entertainment, traveling, health, not being bored, being fun, posting the nicest video, making our house look clean when it's not, all these things. <laughs> filters, light filters. Your walls aren't that white. <laughs> Everyone in here needs God to make the song that you've been singing to yourself new. A song that levels every mountain and raises every valley. So there's nothing on top of something else. There just is God, not even above his people, with, as, and for his people. That's what Christmas time, my favorite, says. God is not above his people. He's with, as, and for his people. There's no favorites. There's just God and his people. There's no competition in your love relationship with God. There's just God loving you in and out of all your mistakes as much as he ever loved you before you ever made them or didn't make them. We have to know this because we have to image this. Think of your coworkers. Do they see you as somebody who has favorites? Think of yourself. When you look at all the different versions of yourself over your life, do you pick and choose which ones you like better than others? Because God doesn't. He loves every version of you, past, present, and future the same. We should learn to love what he loves, amen? Yo, let me tell you something. That right there, that's life-changing. I'm not even playing. We pick and choose. I, I mean, that's not who I am anymore. Yeah, but it's still part of you because it's part of what caused you to be who you are now? Well, I hate that part of me. Well, God doesn't. And you're making concessions in your life without realizing it because you hate that part of yourself. And you know what one of those concessions might be? When you see that version of yourself in somebody else, you attack them because it's reminding you of something you hate. 
Here's how both stories end. How do I know what is, let's stand to our feet this morning. How do I know what the right view of God's love is? Well, number one, you've heard me say this before, I'll say it till I'm dead. Number one, if your view of God looks like Jesus on the cross, dying for his enemies, not killing them, then it's the love of God. Okay? Fair? Paul says, I'll preach nothing except for Christ and him for a reason. But here's the second way that you could know that goes with that. What does Joseph say to his brothers? I'm going to provide for you, your little ones, your little ones, little ones that they don't have yet, your cows, your cattle, your chickens, I don't know what they had back then. You ready? Review your life this week. And here's how you know that you may have a misconception or the right view. If the decisions you're making are not easily benefiting the children and potential children's children of those around you and the environment that you're living in, we need Jesus to sing a new song over our life. All of life and blessing comes down to, if it's from God, it will come through you and it will benefit your children, your children's children, and the actual tangible world that you live in. It'll make it a safer place for our children and our children's children. Joseph said, I'll bless your little ones. The Syrophoenician woman went home and her little one was healed that very moment. All the blessings of God end in making a world safer for our children and our children's children and the trees and the grass and the water around us. Otherwise, we have a domineering, conquering spirit, not a serving one. Start with your own self, Salem. Where are you playing favorites with your own self? Where are you ignoring parts of yourself that you hate and overemphasizing parts of yourself that you love? Where have you looked at yourself and said, I don't like that part of me, but I'm going to put a coat of many colors on this part of me? God wants you to stop all that. It's too exhausting. It's too complicated. He just wants you to love what he loves, and that is your whole self. The part of you that ascends to the heavens, he loves. And the part of you that descends to hell, he went and got you. Maybe we can learn to sit and not be so fidgety. Not need to do, not need to accomplish, not need something new to spark and give me the rush. Maybe we can learn to just sit. Maybe one day I'll tell you, this past week I learned to just sit. And my God, do I have some demons in my head when nothing's going on. Let me tell you, can you imagine? Like, the second day of just sitting, I was like, I don't think God knows what's going on up here. I really don't, because this is intense. You got to sit and let his love wash over you. So here's something funny. Jacqueline and I have been talking about where we're going to put announcements. (laughs) And we were like, we can't put announcements at these emotional parts of the service, can we? And I thought, you know what, I think that's exactly the right way to do it because everything we announce has everything to do with every sermon we'll ever preach because our lives are integrated. So, watch. If this is your first time here, I'm glad you got to hear that God is singing a new song over your life. And if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, I hope that you're accepting him as your Lord and Savior right now because he will sing you into tune every time you get out of tune. He won't break the guitar. He won't pop those strings off of it. He won't kick it. He will just sing you right back into tune every time. Amen, Salem? Right? That was pretty good, right? (laughs) If you have any questions online, you can send a question 
You could meet us in the back. We have a gift for you. Next week, we invited the community to come to church. I don't know how many people will or won't come, but we're going to pray for our students, the rest of them who are going back to school. Thank you, Steve, for uh, praying for them this past week as well. Come ready for a cookout. Bring a chair. We got a whole bunch of free food. It's going to be a great Sunday next week. So far, the weather looks good. Thank you, Jesus. And we're just going to have a wonderful end of the summer. Ladies, y'all are going to Billy Joe's tonight. Sign up and go. Bring me back. Pulled pork mac and cheese. You all listen. Thank you. This is great. Somebody just send that on back because we start a diet tomorrow. So I'm going to eat my face off today. Who doesn't love the day before a diet more than any other day in your entire life? Okay. Men, next Saturday, 7.30 a.m., just coffee, no bells and whistles. I got a word for you. I want you to show up. I want to share it with you. I want to pray with you. We'll be out of there before 9. And like we said, as we get ready to come and receive the gifts of God, I want to bless those who have offered their tithes and offerings. And I want to say to you that if you struggle with offering money at all, tithing is one of the ways that you can keep yourself from having favorites, I promise. When you can't control your money, you'll play favorites with everything in your life. Money's got power, Salem. It's got a lot of power. And it's got sway over us if we don't offer it to God first. Well, I'm just going to offer my own amount. That's fine. You don't have to offer anything, just so you know. I might be the only pastor who will ever say this. And maybe we won't be here next week. Who knows? But here's the thing. You don't have to offer anything. But it's so funny how the Bible says what percent? And it's funny how there are some people who will, once they hear the number, immediately say, well, I'm just going to give a different amount. Well, here's the thing. Fine. Fine. But just understand. When you put your own ambition onto it, it has a hold on you. You ready? I want you to clap for this. God wants you to have money. Come on. You can stop playing. You can clap. Right? He wants you to have money. Right? But you know what he doesn't want? He doesn't want money to have you. He wants you to have money, but he doesn't want money to have you. And if you can't offer, it's got you. Thank you, Lord, for those who are wrestling with this. Father God, I thank you for the wife you gave me that told me she wouldn't date me anymore if I didn't tithe. <laughs> Bro, she did. She did. I don't know why you're laughing at my pain. You know what she said? I've told them this before. You know what she said? She said, if you can't handle your money well, I don't think you'll be able to handle me well. So I was like, <laughs> her dad is clapping. That's my girl. <laughs> so I said, you know, because at first you got to be, you got to be hard. I'm like, oh, whatever, fine. And like two minutes later, I was like, I'm going to start tithing. <laughs> I'm going to start tithing now. Father God, I thank you that you allow us to wrestle with these things. And I just pray a blessing over everyone. And I pray that that blessing would be cheerful giving, including me in my own life. As we go through seasons where there's plenty and seasons where there's lack, I don't want my desire to give to grow in the seasons of plenty and to go away in seasons of lack. Father God, I want the heart that you have for me to be my heart for you. And I just want to be able to give free of any transaction. So I pray that you would bless all of us and bring us to that place. And Lord God, we thank you that it was on the night when you were betrayed, on the night when you were going into a famine of life, that you offered the last bit of bread, the, the, bread, the last piece of bread that you would have eaten, you offered it to us. And you said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This little bread, this little piece, this little crumb that you'll eat can even save the dogs at the bottom of the table, even the ones crucifying me, this bread will save them. And so, Father God, I thank you that you still make yourself known to us in the breaking of the bread. We understand brokenness. 
And now when we look at this bread, we can look at all of our brokenness and say, Jesus is in there waiting for us, feeding us, encouraging us, calling us up higher in the midst of our brokenness. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would descend on this bread and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him, and descend on us also. Forgive us of our sins. Anoint us for this task of the ministry to bring glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to go into all the world and not play favorites, but to show the world the unconditional love of the Father. Help us to receive that love. Help us to show that love. In your name we pray. And everybody said, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Elder George, Elder Bill, would you please come and uh, offer these gifts to the people. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.